as Pastor Logan comes to read God's word with us now. If you would, take out your copy of God's word. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 7. Be reading verses 1 through 9. Hear now the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are do doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you. But it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for the glory of your Son. We thank you, Father, that he was focused on the mission at hand. We thank you that he was resolved to accomplish all that you had set before him. We thank you that our Savior could not be deviated to the right or to the left. And we thank you that we have a Savior who has saved. So God, we pray that as we look now at this passage, as we get back into the Gospel of John, that you would help us to see him, that you would help us to behold Christ, that you would help us to be conformed to his image, and that we would walk as he walked in this world. So, Father, come, please, and minister to your people, we pray this morning. And, God, we ask if there is anyone here who does not know Christ, Lord, that they would see their predicament this morning, that they would see their state before you, and they would see their need of Jesus, and that you would grant them eyes to see his glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. It is very good to be back with you again. Well, I want to start by thanking the men who filled the pulpit for us while I was away. I think you would agree that God supplied richly for all of us through these men. Uh, we were fed richly through the word as they proclaimed. I was blessed tremendously, and I know that you were too because I have heard from many of you. So praise, praise God for that. And, and for those of you, you men who were willing to labor on our behalf for the building up of Christ's church, thank you. Uh, your labors were not in vain. Well, today we are going to be jumping back into our study of John's gospel, starting right where we left off at the beginning of chapter 7. If you're new here to Faith Community Church, to FCC, you need to know that this is our regular practice. Uh, we believe and practice the systematic exposition, expositional preaching of the Word of God. And what that means is that we take a book of the Bible and we preach through it verse by verse without skipping everything until we have completed, starting with the very first verse all the way to the very last verse. 
And the reason we believe in this philosophy of preaching so much is, is because it accomplishes a few things. Uh, first, it, it protects the church from being subject to the whims of the preacher. I do not come here on a weekly basis and just preach on whatever I feel like preaching on in the moment. I preach the very next verse, which means that the preaching agenda is set by the providence of God and, and the Word of God rather than the mere opinions of men. As God's people, we want a regular and steady diet of God's Word, not man's ideas, because it is God's Word that is profitable for teaching. It is God's Word that is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it is God's Word that feeds the soul. And I assure you, my ideas are not worth getting out of bed for. But the Word of God most certainly is. Secondly, this approach to preaching ensures that we receive the full counsel of God. Uh, we do not skip those sections that we do not like or make us feel uncomfortable or are controversial. Nor do we focus only on that which makes us feel good or that which we want to hear about. And we address all that God's Word has for us, which brings a healthy balance to what we hear from the pulpit. And third, another kind of side benefit to this is it ought to passively help the hearers understand how to study your Bibles for yourselves. As we've gone through this book, through the Gospel of John, I hope you have been seeing how it is that we examine both the parts and the whole, and how we see that context is what is informing meaning as we seek to understand the intent of the author, both the divine author as God the Holy Spirit and the human author, the Apostle John. As you hear the word preached expositionally, you ought to learn how to interpret it for yourself and be exercising that in your own study for your own edification. And so for those reasons and, and many, many more, this is our practice. Yes, we will occasionally take a break and dig into other parts of Scripture or address particular issues from the Word, but our default is to always come back to this, to come back to working through the Scripture systematically. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> we have been in the Gospel of John now for right at a year, I think this week, and Today, we are beginning chapter 7, and this really marks a shift in the gospel, as we will see Jesus' ministry in Galilee really comes to an end here, and, and now the focus is, is on his ministry, his time in Judea, his remaining time uh, leading up to his death. The hostility that Jesus faced back in chapter 5, if you remember what happened there, is continuing here in chapter 7. And more than that, it's rising. Things are getting intense for Christ. And if there's anything that we will see in the coming passages, it is that there is an increasing hostility towards the person of Christ, towards His teaching from a people who were already set on killing Him. And John leads into that here with an introduction that really sets the stage for the next two chapters, for both chapters 7 and chapter 8, which is what we're going to be looking at here today. But what is surprising about this little introduction to the next section is that Jesus does run into more antagonism and rejection right away, but not from Jewish leaders, not from the religious elites, 
or even from outsiders, but from his own family, from his own kin. As we will see, when Jesus warned in Matthew 10 that a person's enemies will become those of his own household as a consequence of following him, he was not speaking of something that he had not experienced himself. So John begins this new section about the increasing rejection and hostility towards Christ with this surprising encounter that he has with his own brothers. And we're going to walk through this little encounter in three sections. We're going to look at the setting that John establishes. We're going to look at the conflict with his brothers. And then we're going to look at Jesus' response. And as we look at this, there's some lessons here in Christ's examples that we have to get. If there's anything that's a consistent source of difficulty in the Christian life, it is navigating family dynamics faithfully, especially when you have unbelievers in your family. Many of you know that well. And that can present certain temptations that we must handle with care in order to be faithful to the Lord. But as we will see today, these are not temptations that Christ himself has not faced. And like Christ, we, we must be a people who resolve to live in obedience to the will of God, to live for God, no matter what the source of opposition is in our lives. Because we are not our own. We do not belong to this world. And that reality must shape the way that we live our lives, even among our own family. So let's look at this. Let's look at this introduction and this encounter, starting with the, the setting that John establishes for this section. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand. John again starts this section out with the familiar words, after this. And by this point, you should be getting used to John's writing stylistically. And we, as we have discussed before, these words are, are John's way of just moving from scene to scene, from one event to the next. Uh, but it does not at all imply some kind of tight chronology. He is not saying that this is the very next thing that happened. He is simply moving on from everything that happened in chapter 6 to the next event that he wants to highlight in chapter 7. And between the events of chapter 6 and the coming events of chapter 7, John tells us that Jesus had been going about in Galilee. These were the final months of Jesus' Galilean ministry that John is speaking of. Now, John doesn't record the de details of those final months for us. They're not really keeping in his theological purposes. But the synoptics, on the other hand, Matthew, Mark, and Luke do get quite detailed on Christ's Galilean ministry. So we certainly know what happened during this time. We can, you can read about it there. But John lets us know simply that during this time, he stayed out of Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now this should not come as a surprise to us as we've been working through this as the readers because we saw this hostility begin back in chapter 5. And John is intentionally bringing your mind back to that hostility that we ran into two chapters ago. In fact, down in verse 21 of chapter 7, 
Jesus is going to reference what happened when he healed that 38-year invalid at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath day. And as a result, he was charged with breaking the Sabbath and blasphemy by the Jews. It was then that the, the murderous hostility towards Christ began. In fact, in chapter 5, verse 18, it says this. It says, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, when John says the Jews, both here in chapter 7 and back in chapter 5, he is specifically referencing Jewish leadership. And primarily, he's speaking of the Pharisees, the religious elites of the day. And they hated Jesus. They hated what he was doing. They hated his claims. They hated his teachings. And they wanted him dead as soon as possible. And everyone knew it. And Jesus knew it. And so because of that, Jesus avoided Judea until the right time. He did not avoid Judea because he was afraid to die, to be sure. Not at all. He, he knew his death was coming, and he willingly gave his life at the opportune time. But it wasn't going to be on their schedule. It was going to be on God's schedule, as we will continue to see. So because of that, he remained in Galilee for some time. And actually, there's been a pretty big time gap between chapter 6 and chapter 7. We know that because of John's continued use of the feasts as the Jewish feast as a backdrop for what is going on in the gospel. In chapter 6, he, he began that section by telling us that the time of the Passover, the, the feast of the unleavened bread, was at hand which served as a theological backdrop as, as Jesus multiplied the fish and the loaves, he fed the 5,000, and he put himself forth as the bread of life, which must be consumed if anyone wants to receive eternal life. All of that happened during the time of the Passover. Well, now in chapter 7, John marks the time by telling us that the Feast of Booze, or the Feast of Tabernacles, is at hand which tells us that six months has passed. Uh, the Passover was in the spring, typically around April, and the Feast of Booze was in the fall, typically around October. And this feast was the feast. This was the most celebratory of all Jewish feasts. This was a celebration of God's provision as the harvest was brought in. And it was a remembrance of the wilderness wanderings of their forefathers. You see, God had instituted this feast back in Deuteronomy 16 and Leviticus 23 as one of the three main feasts that all Jewish males were required to attend. And in Jewish culture, this was the big one. This was the most joyous and celebratory of them all as the ingathering of the harvest was brought in and the feasting began. It was called the, the Feast of Booze or Tabernacles because it was required that everyone set up a little leafy-like tent or booth in which they would dwell for the duration of the feast, which lasted seven days. 
He was basically a giant Jewish campout with a lot of feasting. And the purpose of this, according to Leviticus, was so that all of Israel would remember the time that God led his people through the wilderness and provided for them, and during which they lived in tents. They lived in booze. But it was not just the people who lived in tents during this time, during the wilderness, before the temple was built. It was also the presence of God. God was in the tabernacle, a tent in the midst of his people. And once again, this feast is going to play huge into the theological backdrop of what is going on throughout chapter 7 and chapter 8. And we'll see that with with Jesus' words in various ways as, as we progress through this. But the entire time, there is a great and tragic irony that we must see. Because as the Jews are celebrating the time in which the presence of God tabernacled among them, they are simultaneously trying to kill the very presence of God that is among them now. In fact, John intentionally used this word tabernacled in the prologue to describe Jesus as being among us. In John 1.14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word dwelt is actually the Greek word for tabernacled, to pitch a tent, to make one's dwelling. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He made His dwelling among us. As the Jews religiously celebrate God's presence among their forefathers, they are simultaneously rejecting God's presence among themselves. It is a tragic reality in the backdrop of this entire section. And John does not want you to miss that as we begin. So that is the setting that John has laid out for these next two chapters. But now let's look at this initial conflict that Jesus encounters with his own brothers. Look at verse 3. It says, So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Now, this is a strange encounter, to be sure. First, it's important to emphasize that these are, in fact, the blood brothers of Jesus Christ. Of course, they were his younger half-brothers. We know that because Mary conceived Christ as a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit, and Joseph was his adoptive father. These are the sons of Mary and Joseph. These are the half-brothers of Jesus Which, just as an aside, this text and and many others that mention them are a massive corrective to the Roman Catholic system in their false exaltation of Mary as the perpetual virgin. The, The truth is, Mary had lots of children, at least four sons and multiple daughters that are mentioned in various places throughout the Scripture. And the sons are even named in Matthew chapter 13. When Jesus was rejected at his own hometown in Nazareth, their reasoning was, we know his family. We know where this guy comes from. Listen listen to that passage, 
Matthew 13. It says this, And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son, Joseph? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters here with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown and in his own household. And we will see just how true those words were in this passage here today. Now, Jesus, without question, had brothers. They were named James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Not to be confused with the disciples who bore the same name, but two of these brothers we know very well. This is James who wrote the book of James. And the one who is called Judas is also known as Jude, who wrote the book of Jude. These men were actually pillars in the early church. The original readers of this gospel would know who they are. But John is here letting us know that at this point in their lives, they were not believers at all. Uh, All four of these brothers were unbelieving during the entirety of Jesus' ministry, Jesus' life. In fact, not only were they unbelievers, but they are actually quite antagonistic to the ministry of Christ. At one point early in his ministry, in Mark chapter 3, it says that they tried to stop Jesus from doing what he was doing because they thought he was out of his mind. They thought he was crazy. They thought he had lost it. These guys were not proponents of the ministry of Christ at all while he was alive. And because of that, here in this passage, I think we are to see a bit of hyperbole and sarcasm in their words. This is not at all to be viewed as a, as a good faith request for Jesus to reveal himself. Not at all. This was actually a challenge from unbelievers. Now, commentators kind of debate the way that this is supposed to be read, but I think Edward Clink and others make a very good case when they say that this is to be seen in the light of mockery. That makes the best sense of this text. In fact, John's explicit point in verse 5 is that their words are evidence for the fact that they were unbelievers. And if this was simply a good faith request for Jesus to reveal himself, it would not demonstrate unbelief at all. It wouldn't make sense of verse 5. But that is, that is not what's going on here. They are using over-the-top and punchy language on purpose. And when they, when they say, you should go to Judea so that your disciples may also see your works, they're not talking about Jesus' 12 disciples. They are talking about Jews in general. If you are the Jewish Messiah that you claim to be, then go to the center of Judaism where the most religious Jews are and they're waiting for you. Let your people, your disciples, the, the Messiah anticipating Jews, see your works. Go reveal yourself, Jesus. It's a sarcastic use of the word disciples. 
And then sadly, what's worse is they boil down his motives to seeking to be known, seeking attention, seeking his own glory. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. Jesus, you're just about yourself. You're just seeking to be known. They believed him to be after fame and glory, a point Jesus will directly address and refute down in verse 18, which we'll look at next week. But then they leave him with this last provoking line. If you do these things, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. This is actually truly satanic language. Think about it. Where have we heard language like this before? Is this not the same tactic that Satan himself took with Christ in the wilderness? Matthew chapter 4. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. Satan was using provoking language. Why? To get Jesus to deviate from his course. Similarly, even when Peter tried to tell Jesus that he would not go to the cross, what did Jesus say to his chief disciple? Get behind me, Satan. This was a satanic suggestion from the mouth of Peter that Christ would not fulfill his mission, go to the cross. And here, Jesus' own brothers are using the same satanic, provoking language with the same satanic purpose to get him to deviate from his course. If you are the Messiah, if you are really doing the works of the Messiah, then go to the feast. Show yourself to the world. Prove yourself, brother. You want followers? You are the Messiah? Well, Jerusalem is the, is the place. That's where it's all happening. Judea is the place. Everyone is there. Go on, Jesus. The world is waiting. This is the provoking counsel of unbelievers. And unquestionably, for anybody else, there would have been great temptation here. Don't forget the context. Don't forget what's happened. The beginning of chapter 6 was no doubt the peak of Jesus' popularity. He had thousands of followers who were so excited about him that they were willing to traverse land and sea to chase him all over and were ready to make him king. But by the end of chapter 6, they had turned their backs on him and no longer walked with him. All that is left is his original 12, and, and one of them was a devil. Jesus is Ministry popularity had reached a sharp decline. And John wants you to remember that at this point. He doesn't want you to lose sight of what happened in chapter 6. This is why he uses the language in verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. At this point, Jesus barely has any followers. And by all outward appearances, it looks like his ministry is a failure. And for the past six months, he's been focusing primarily on the few disciples that he does have. And he's been doing that in remote areas. By worldly measurements, it's not looking good. And what's more, 
is this is actually way far into his ministry. In fact, at this point, we're only six months out. We're six months out from the next Passover, which will be the last Passover, which was the time of his death. This thing is wrapping up. Things are winding down. And Jesus is getting close to his death, and not even his own brothers believe in him at this point. Brings a different weight to John's opening words when he said that he came to his own, and even his own people did not receive him, including his own family. So at this point, to go to the center of the Jewish religion at the most popular festival of the year and make a splash would be a temptation indeed for anyone else. But Christ knows why he is here. Christ knows what he is doing. Essentially what we are seeing here is Psalm 1 being lived out. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. Christ is the blessed man of Psalm 1. And he is showing that here. Even though these were his own brothers, this was the counsel of the wicked. And he walks not in it. You see, the fact is, Jesus was not here to win a crowd. Jesus did not come to have the masses follow him for what he could do. He did not come to prove himself nor to seek his own glory. He was not after applause or mere admiration. If that was his purpose, he most certainly could have done all kinds of things to impress everyone. This is God in the flesh, the one who rules over creation. If he wanted to show himself to the world to gain a following, as his brother suggests, he most certainly could have. But he came with a different purpose. Sadly, I think this, this misconception of why Jesus came and what he is after is still pretty prevalent today. That he's just pining away for followers. That he's just seeking attention from anyone and everyone. And what's worse is very often this is how he's presented by modern day evangelicals. That he's just desperate begging everyone to follow him. And he holds out eternal life as a carrot to gain one's affections. Almost like one would give a piece of meat to a dog in order to gain his loyalty. In fact, the other day, me and another brother from our church had an unexpected witness encounter with a man that I believe very much has this perspective. Because at one point in the conversation, he said that he had been to an evangelical church he had heard the gospel and Jesus would need to come down and reveal himself to him or he would need to find himself in hell before he would believe in Jesus Jesus needs to prove himself to gain his following because that is what he's after right just amassing mere followers who are impressed with him just people who will give him attention and allegiance no that is a damnable idea. Jesus did not come for mere followers who were just looking to gain from his hand, nor did he come for attention. He did not come to just merely win over the masses. Remember, Jesus is the eternal God. He needs nothing and no one. 
The triune God is perfectly content in and of himself and eternally has been. He created the world not out of need, but out of love. And he came down to this world not out of need, but out of love. And in love, Jesus came to die in order to pay sin's penalty, to satisfy the wrath of God, in order to save an evil people for himself. Jesus did not come out of selfish ambition, but out of mercy and grace. He did not come for the admiration of sinners, but he came to glorify his Father and bestow his grace upon the undeserving so that all who believe might share in his own inheritance for all of eternity and magnify the grace of God. That was his mission. That is what he was after. And because that was his mission, given to him by the Father, he would not be moved by this ungodly provocation, even if it came from his own brothers. And for that reason, he responds the way he does. Look at his response, starting in verse 6. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Jesus' response here is one more reason why I believe we should absolutely see the provocative nature of his brother's words. Because Jesus is being very sharp. This is a rebuke on a couple of levels, which would not make sense if theirs was a good faith request. But Jesus is just being straightforward with these guys. Even in his rebuke, I believe he is lovingly telling them the hard truth about who they are. Think about what he says. He tells them, my time has not yet come, but yours, your time is always here. What does he mean by this? Well, we've seen Jesus use language similar to this before when he speaks of his coming hour. In fact, the the coming hour is a repeated theme all throughout the book of John to speak of his death and his glorification. But this is the only place in the gospel where he uses actually a different word. He uses the word time rather than hour. Most commentators believe, I believe, that this use of the word is is for the fact that he's, he's speaking more of God's providential directing in his life rather than the moment of his death and glorification. See, Jesus came to carry out the Father's will. He came on God's timetable, and he was living for God's purposes. He was not walking around just willy-nilly, waiting to see what the next thing would happen, and then making decisions on a whim. Not at all. As we saw with the Samaritan woman, everything was on a divine timetable and was happening with a divine purpose. Jesus was on a mission, and everything he did mattered. Timing mattered. And that included when and how he would go up to this feast. And that is what he's speaking of. When he says, I am not going up to the feast in verse 8, he obviously doesn't mean that he's, he's never going up to the feast because he does go 
No, what he is saying is that he will not go at the time and in the manner that his brothers were pushing him to do. They wanted him to go now and out in the open. But it was in God's purposes that he would go later and in private until the opportune time, which we see in verse 10. Because his, his life is directed by the will of God, his decisions for his life are consequential for the kingdom of God. And contextually, the Jews are, are seeking to kill him. He is a wanted man. The way he made his next public appearance had to be done with great care. But he tells his brothers, your time is always here. This was a sharp rebuke, meaning it is inconsequential what decisions you make and when you go. When you go does not matter at all because your life is not submitted to God. Your life is not operating on God's timetable. You are not a part of God's kingdom. You are not carrying out His will. And therefore, in this world, your life is not constrained by the will of God. For that reason, it makes no difference when you go. Your time is always here because you are in this world and you are part of this world. Which is why Jesus says, for that reason, the world does not hate you. In fact, he says, the world cannot hate you. Why? Because they're a part of it. They are the world. This is, this is the opposite of what Jesus will later tell his own disciples. In John 15, he tells his disciples, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. But here, he tells his brothers, the world doesn't hate you, can't hate you, because you are the world. Therefore, you're free to do whatever you want in this world. It makes no difference, but for Christ, it's different. The world hates him. Why? Because he reveals the world for what it truly is. Evil. He testifies to that reality both with his words and with his very life. He is the light of the world. This is exactly what we saw back in John chapter 3. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. See, the real, real reason why Jesus was so hated then and why he is so hated now is because he reveals evil for what it truly is. He shines a light into the darkness of the human heart, of every human heart, and he exposes what is in there. And it's not righteousness. People hate the true Christ, not because he offers eternal life, but because he's holy. And we are not. Because his holiness makes a moral declaration about our lives and our hearts and our unholiness. His person and his teaching reveal that we are, in fact, an evil people outside of him who are in need of saving. 
This is why a faithful gospel proclamation cannot be made if it does not expose the darkness of humanity. The good news must be preceded by the bad news. A faithful presentation of the gospel should never leave the hearer with the impression that Jesus needs us, that Jesus needs followers, that he's just looking for acceptance. Rather, it should show forth the evil in one's own heart and make clear the reality that apart from Christ, we are all enemies of God. It should leave the hearer with the reality that I need Jesus, I need mercy. We need His acceptance. He doesn't need ours. He does not need us. But we need Him. And He knows that. And for that reason, He is resolved out of love to complete the mission at hand, no matter the opposition. He will not be swayed to turn to the right or to to the left or even to move the timetable up a couple of days. And so for that reason, he remains in Galilee until the opportune time, which we will look at next week. Jesus was resolved to carry out the will of the Father out of mercy and love. He did not succumb to the temptations of this world to deviate no matter the source, even with his own brothers. As we finish this up, there's a couple things that I think we ought to take away from this interesting encounter that Christ had with his own family. There's a lot of lessons that we can learn from this encounter that Jesus has with his brothers, but I I just want to highlight three before we close. First is a word pertaining to our biological families. Not all of you, but I would dare say that the vast majority of you know what it is to have unbelieving family members. And why we love our natural families very much, we must always remember that our allegiance must first and foremost be to Christ. And we look at this at the end of chapter 6 when the, the 12 disciples watched their own people, the Galileans, turn their back on Christ, and Jesus put them to the test. He turned to them and said, Do you want to go his way as well? Christ was not calling them, though, to something that he had not experienced or faced himself. His loyalty to was, was to his heavenly Father, even above his earthly family. But that does not mean that he did not love his brothers. Christ did love his brothers very much. And it's for that reason that he was willing to speak these hard truths to them. We will not do our families, our unsaved loved ones, any favors by shaving off the tough edges of the gospel for them. We must always be ready to speak the truth in love and point them to their need of Christ at any time. And just as a source of encouragement, while these guys never came to believe the truth during the life of Christ, they did after the resurrection. We know that because they are listed among those who are waiting on the promise of the Holy Spirit in the upper room in Acts chapter 1, which tells us that there is hope for even the most antagonistic of hearts. 
As long as your loved ones have breath, there is hope. Yes, their salvation is never guaranteed, but you should never give up speaking the truth and praying for them. We can always rest in the fact that the, the judge of all the earth will do right. He will. Second thing that we see in this passage is we see that our life choices must always be in keeping with God's will. Now, yes, we are not on the same kind of timetable that Jesus was on, but as God's people, we are called to live in a certain manner and in a certain way as defined by the Word of God. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, we must make it our aim at all times to be very well-pleasing to God. Or in Ephesians 5, that we seek to make the best use of our time because the days are evil. You see, we are not of this world. And our decisions do have consequences for the kingdom of God. We are the body of Christ in this world. We are ambassadors for Christ. God is working in this world through us. When we bear His name, we represent Him in this world. This means we must live our lives by the Word of God. Following in the footsteps of Christ, we seek to live out Psalm chapter 1. We do not subject ourselves to the counsel of the wicked, no matter the source. Any and all counsel that you ever receive that is contrary to this book, to the Bible, is wicked counsel. No matter who it comes from. Your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, doesn't matter. If it's contrary to this, it's wicked counsel. And you are not to subject yourself to it. We make our decisions in life according to the Word of God. And we should only subject ourselves to counsel that is in keeping with that. We must make it our aim to be well-pleasing to God. And lastly, we must always seek to remember what Jesus was after. Jesus was not after your mere admiration. He was not wanting your mere allegiance. He was not after applause. Jesus was purchasing a people with his own blood, ransoming sinners from every tribe and nation and tongue. That means to be a Christian is not to be a casual follower of Christ, but it is to be a devoted worshiper. You are defined by Christ if you are His because you belong to Him. You are owned. You have been bought with a price. He didn't give up everything for an applause. He gave up everything to purchase your redemption with His own blood and to forgive you of your sins and to bestow upon you an eternal inheritance that is kept in heaven for you. All is an unmerited gift of grace. That means that you are His and He is yours forevermore. That's what it means to be a Christian. Not to be just a casual follower. He was after a different relationship. An eternal, covenantal relationship with His people. Not a crowd of admirers, but for a people who are worshipers, conforming their lives to his. And because of that, we must live for him. Not for this world, not for our families, not for anything else, but for Christ. 
Where else are you going to go? Christ is all you need. And in reality, Christ is all you have. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for your Son who did not deviate to the right or to the left, who kept your timetable, who carried out your will, and that he might redeem a people, make us your children. Thank you for the privilege that we possess by grace and mercy. I pray, Lord, that we would live lives that are worthy of the gospel to which we've been called. I pray that you would empower us to be faithful ambassadors of Christ in this world and to submit our lives to the word of God in every and any situation that we encounter. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.